Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, we return to Hebrews this morning, after a week away. And let me just begin again by saying that we're in the middle of a section emphasizing uh, the priesthood of Jesus, and the writer's clear thesis in his epistle is that Jesus' priesthood is absolutely central. It's the very marrow of the Christian's confession, the Christian's confession of Christ. And I've said to you several times that to whatever extent we don't rightly understand or, or rightly own this thing of Jesus' priesthood, our confession of him, our testimony of him is at best impoverished and maybe even uh, illegitimate altogether. The priesthood of Jesus is absolutely the marrow of the Christian's confession of him, and it implicates everything about his person and work. That's the reason that it's central. It implicates his incarnation. It implicates his earthly ministry, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his enthronement. All of those things can only be understood in terms of his priesthood. And Jesus' priesthood obviously had its precedent in the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, that was the ministration, the priestly ministration that uh, God ordained to serve and mediate his relationship with the people of Israel. At the same time, Jesus' priesthood also transcends that Levitical priesthood. It transcends it as promise is transcended by fulfillment. Jesus' priesthood doesn't set aside in some sort of arbitrary or abstract way the previous priesthood associated with Levi, associated with Aaron, but it represents the fulfillment of what that priesthood brought to bear and and the way in which it instructed and taught the sons of Israel. And that transcendence of Jesus' priesthood is the issue with this Melchizedek idea. The the way in which uh, the nature of the transcendence of Jesus' priesthood over the Levitical priestly system, that is indicated by but also illumined. Insight into that transcendence comes through the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that's the reason that the writer of Hebrews makes this figure of Melchizedek, who plays such a little role in the scripture as we've seen, he puts him front and center and makes him central in his treatment, not only of the bigger picture of Jesus, but certainly in terms of the priesthood that he held in the priestly ministration that he carries out. We saw last time as we, uh, we returned back in chapter 7, uh, after the exhortation, the writer returns back to his consideration of Melchizedek. We saw last time that chapter 7 contains three 
distinct sections, all that have Melchizedek at the center. But the first is a kind of biographical sketch of the person of Melchizedek. That's what we considered the last time. The next section is a, a description of the greatness of Melchizedek. That's what we're going to consider today. That takes us through verse 10. And then the last part of chapter 7 shows the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Levitical counterpart. The, the priesthood associated with Levi and ultimately initiated in Aaron himself. The Israelite priesthood. Well, read with me, if you will. Uh, we'll pick this up at verse 4 of chapter 7. The first three verses are the uh, biographical sketch of Melchizedek that we considered last time. But beginning at verse 4, chapter 7, the writer says, Observe, and this is the idea of take careful scrutiny, not, not just a passing glance, but consider carefully, examine carefully. Observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, the beginning of the covenant relationship, Observe how great this man Melchizedek was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law, in the law of Moses, the covenant with Israel, to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although they too are descended from Abraham." But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, the case of Melchizedek, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. He lives and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. A very simple, a very straightforward passage, but also very profound, uh, not only in its, its, its immediate meaning, but ultimately in its significance. So the writer now turns himself from a sketch of Melchizedek to demonstrating his greatness, and once again he turns to the only scriptural passage that deals with Melchizedek, which is Genesis 14. Just those few verses. And remember the context of that, uh, of that situation was Abraham had led out the men of his household and done battle with a coalition of four kings who had uh, triumphed over a coalition of five kings and he conquered them and took the spoil. And after that conquest, Melchizedek comes out to him and meets him. So the only passage in the scripture that, that is a narrative dealing with Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. And it deals with this encounter between Melchizedek and Abraham. Now, that's the obvious reason why he deals with the greatness of Melchizedek in relation to Abraham. But there's a greater significance to that. He recognized that episode in Genesis 14 as having prophetic significance. But that's the, that's the episode that he's drawing from. He goes back to Genesis 14 to show Melchizedek's greatness with respect to Abraham. 
But because his ultimate goal is to deal with Melchizedek's priesthood in relation to the Levitical priesthood, he doesn't stop with Abraham, but he establishes, he demonstrates the superiority of Melchizedek to Levi. And he does that by drawing an inference from the story in Genesis 14. So that's the approach that he takes. I want to treat this then just in terms of those two heads. I've titled this The Greatness of Melchizedek. That's what the writer's talking about. But he shows his greatness with respect to Abraham and then with respect to Levi. I think everybody recognizes who Levi was, but Abraham was the covenant patriarch. He had numerous sons, but the covenant son was Isaac. And then Isaac gave birth to Jacob, who also was the covenant son, in contrast to his twin uh, Esau. Jacob was renamed Israel, Yisrael, the one who prevails with God because God prevails in him. Jacob became the man Israel, and then from the man Israel came the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Levi. And Levi was the the man among the 12 sons of uh, Jacob, who ultimately his descendants were given the priesthood by God. All of Israel's priests came from the tribe of Levi. And that's going to be critically important, not just here, but as we move forward. Because the balance of chapter 7 is dealing with the priesthood. And it follows through into 9, or into 8 and into 9. So we have to understand again that, that where the writer is coming from is recognizing that the priesthood that had its origin in Abraham really was localized in the descendant of Abraham, Levi. You say, well, I thought Aaron was the first high priest. He was, but he was a descendant of Levi. There were no priests in Israel who were not of the tribe of Levi. So that's kind of the starting point. So he shows the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham, but then secondly, by inference from Genesis 14, the superiority of Melchizedek to Levi. Well, the way in which he shows the superiority with respect to Abraham is, again, by the story in Genesis 14, but by noting two features of that. And both of those features highlight this idea of a greater and a lesser. Both of these things that we're going to discuss that are in the story in Genesis 14 uh, point to and are are, are kind of uh, centered around this idea of a greater and a lesser. A greater and a lesser. And both of these two things that deal with the idea of a greater and a lesser point to the superiority of Melchizedek. And most importantly, in this context, that aspect or that dynamic of superiority is tied to the priestly status and function. In other words, you could say, okay, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, but in what sense? Intellect, height, uh, um, financial well-being, you know, what, what is the arena of superiority? And the specific issue here is tied to this idea of priesthood and priestly ministration. 
So the first aspect that he draws on is this tithe idea. Abraham conquers the four kings, or uh, the four kings who had conquered the five kings, and so the spoil of conquest becomes his. And Melchizedek comes out to him, who is king of Salem, early Jerusalem, priest of God Most High. And the text in Genesis 14, we won't go back and read it, but you can read it. It's only like three verses. When Melchizedek comes out to Abram, he's not yet Abraham, but when he comes out to Abram, Abram gives him a tenth of the spoils, the tithe, so to speak. And the writer sees in that, that endowment from Abraham to Melchizedek a kind of prefiguration or at least a foreshadowing of the tithing arrangement that God ordained for Israel. If you look in Numbers 18, if you look in Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 26, you see the law of the tithe. The Levites from whom the priests were taken had no land inheritance. When you look at the way the land was partitioned up amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, Levi wasn't a part of that reckoning. Levi was pulled out. And actually, Joseph was reckoned twice. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So you pull out one tribe, you you divide Joseph in half, there's the 12 tribes. But the Levites had no land inheritance. The point was, the Levites were holy to the Lord. They were the Lord's possession. But in that world at that time, if you had no land, you couldn't live. Because you had to raise crops, you had to raise animals. And so the tithe was the way in which God provided for the Levites, which included the priests. Israel was to bring a tenth of the yield of their flocks and their herds and their fields and bring them as an offering to the Lord for the support of the Levites. And from within that, there was the tithe of the tithe that went specifically to Aaron and the priests themselves. Because not all the Levites were priests, but all the priests were Levites. So he sees in this thing between Abraham and Melchizedek a kind of prefiguration or or depiction of what would ultimately be the tithing that would take place between the people of Israel and the Levites. In other words, he saw the same priest-worshipper dynamic as had been Israel's experience under the law of Moses. He saw that, a kind of foreshadowing of that in this episode in Genesis 14. Abraham gives the tithe to Melchizedek as the children of Israel gave the tithe to Levi, to the Levites whether the priests or the whole Levitical uh, tribe. And remember that others among the Levites were responsible for the temple. The priests ministered in the temple and the tabernacle first, but the other sons of Levi, the three sons of Levi specifically, were responsible for handling, moving, setting up, transporting, dealing with the tabernacle itself. Koath, Merari, Gershon. Right? I don't know if you all remember that, but you had 
I think Merari was responsible for the hardware. Gershom was responsible for all the linens and, and all the things that went over the hardware. But Koath and his sons were responsible for the holy things, the wrapping of the things, including the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand. And, and so the Levites were the ones who were holy to the Lord. They did all of the work of the sanctuary, all of the work, not just of the priestly work, but all of the work associated with the temple and before that, the tabernacle. So the first thing then that speaks to lesser and greater is the idea of the tithe. The second thing that speaks to the lesser and the greater is Melchizedek's blessing. Abram gives a tenth to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses Abram in the name of God most high who has given you deliverance over your enemies. And that's an important idea because remember Abram in the covenant God made with him, it was very clear that there were regal, kingly, dominion sorts of ideas associated with that covenant. Abram was to be a great nation. And in this conquest where he goes out with 300 men of his household and he destroys or he conquers, he overthrows a coalition of four kings and their armies, it's, we're supposed to see God has made him great. He's beginning to make him great. And Melchizedek is acknowledging that. God has given you the victory. And very soon God will say to Sarah, Sarai as she becomes Sarah, princess, kings and rulers will come forth for you, from you. And God will give you the gates of your enemies. There's a dominion. There's a, a regal quality. And ultimately the blessing on Judah that the scepter would come to Judah and would not depart from Judah. Again, one of Jacob's sons, until Shiloah comes, the one to whom it belongs. The Abrahamic covenant had mediation and kingship at the center of it. And we've talked about that before. But Melchizedek is coming out and, and he is being given a tithe. And then he blesses Abram in the name of God Most High as a priest. He's priest of God Most High. So in Israel's covenant life, tithes were paid by the lesser to the greater. And blessings were bestowed upon the lesser by the greater. There was a very, not all blessings came from priests. But if a father blessed his son, it was greater to the lesser. When Jacob blessed his sons, it was the greater to the lesser. When Joseph blessed his sons and had Jacob blessed the sons, it was the greater to the lesser. But specifically, God entrusted the blessing of the people to the priests. Remember the Aaronic benediction in number six? I don't know if you recall that, but it's often, churches often use that benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God said, you, Aaron, you bless the people with that blessing. And then later, God said, I've given to the Levites the charge to be the instrument of my blessing upon the people. So there's, there's a, 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 a central issue of priestly blessing. You have Melchizedek as a priest blessing Abraham. So the point is twofold then. Tithes go from the lesser to the greater, and blessings go from the greater to the lesser. The priests received the people's tithes as greater, though they were also sons of Abraham, which he says here. 
because they were set apart to the Lord. They had a unique status. The tithes went from the people to the priests to the Levites, the whole tribe of Levi, as the lesser to the greater, and the priests pronounced and the Levites on behalf of the priests would pronounce God's blessing upon the people, blessing going from the greater to the lesser. Well, that's how he presents this superiority with respect to Abraham. But his goal, again, is to prove the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. That's where he's going with this. And that required then that he had to show Melchizedek's superiority relative to Levi. Why? Because the priesthood was grounded in Levi. All of the priests came from the tribe of Levi. And that's going to become huge in his argument down the line of why Jesus has to be a priest of a different order. If he were just another man on the earth, he couldn't be a priest because he's of the wrong tribe. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the royal tribe, the kingly tribe, not the priestly tribe. We saw this in Zechariah. There could not be a king priest in Israel because you can't be descended from two brothers. It's one or the other or neither. So it was important for him to establish Abraham's uh, Melchizedek's superiority over Abraham, but it would not be sufficient for the argument that he's trying to make. So here's the basis of his reasoning. Levi and the priesthood that came from him, which originated with Aaron and Aaron's sons, but the priesthood that is tied to Levi, those things were grounded in Abraham. God gave the priesthood to um, Levi in connection with the law of Moses. But what was the law of Moses? But God ratifying the Abrahamic promises and the Abrahamic relationship with the nation descended from Abraham. When God sent Moses to deliver the Israelites, he said, I remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm sending you, Moses, to bring them out to fulfill the promise I made to Abraham, that I would make you a great nation, and I would be your God, and you would be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. I'm bringing you out to gather you to myself. And he brought them to Sinai, and there he ratified that relationship. God ratified the relationship with the whole nation in this thing that we call the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant wasn't something new. It was God ratifying the Abrahamic relationship with Abraham's descendants. And it was in that, that law of Moses, it was in that covenant that the prescription for Levi and his sons was given. So the point is that the Levitical priesthood was set within the Abrahamic covenant. It was set within the Abrahamic relationship. On the other hand, though, Melchizedek was not related to Abraham. And we're going to see that. But he wasn't related. He comes out, he meets Abraham. He has an encounter with Abraham, but he's not related to him. He's not an Abrahamite. He doesn't stand within that covenant structure. He doesn't stand within that relationship. His priesthood predated and was distinct from the Levitical priesthood that 
would come down the line. At the time that Abram meets Melchizedek, there is no Israel. There is no Sinai. There is no priesthood, no Levitical priesthood. That's all future. So Melchizedek's priesthood predates and is distinct from the Levitical priesthood. This is why Psalm 110, and the writer keeps emphasizing that he was a priest of a different order, right? So the writer is showing the superiority of Melchizedek over Levi, and he does it by drawing an inference related to this tithing idea. And this idea is, you know, this is very simple. His premise is that the tithe from Abraham to Melchizedek is from the lesser to the greater. But Levi is in Abram at that time as a descendant. In the Hebrew way of viewing things, descendants are in the fathers. They're in their loins, so to speak. So when Abram, as the lesser, tithes to Melchizedek, Levi is also participating in that. Both of the two features that pertain to Abram pertain to Levi. Levi tithes in Abram, and Levi is blessed in Abram. That's how he establishes, it's by connecting Levi with Abram, that's how he establishes the greatness of Melchizedek relative to him. If Melchizedek is greater than Abram, ipso facto, he's greater than Levi. That's the simple basis of his logic. Levi, though, within the scheme that these Hebrew readers understood, and which was true of Israel's history, Levi and the Levites enjoyed preeminence over the rest of God's people. Holy to the Lord. He provided for them. They were set apart. They were distinct. If someone other than a Kohathite even touched an article from the tabernacle, God would punish him. God told the Kohathites, you better package this stuff right. You better close it up. You better, you know, whether the, the, the shovels and the spoons and all, you know, all of the implements, the bowls, the, all, everything pertaining to God's dwelling place, you need to cover it appropriately and you carry it. Because if one of your, one of your countrymen, a layman, looks on it, he will die. The Levites had a preeminence and their preeminence was over all of all of Abraham's household. But the fact that, Mel that Levi was himself also a child of Abraham establishes his inferiority. He, Levi was superior to all of Abraham's other children, but Levi himself, because he's a child of Abraham, he's also inferior to, Mel to Melchizedek. And the writer shows that in three things. The first is, again, as I mentioned, Melchizedek's own genealogy. Melchizedek wasn't a part of Abram's family. Well, why does that matter? Because if he was a part of Abram's family, there would only be two options available to him. Either he could be a Levite and share the priestly preeminence with Levi, or he could be inferior to Levi and would be obligated to pay tithes to Levi along with 
the rest of the children of Abraham. The point is this, if Melchizedek was a child of Abraham, if he was in the Abrahamic family, he could not have preeminence over Levi. He could maybe share that preeminence if he was a Levi, but he couldn't, have, he couldn't be superior to Levi. And he couldn't be superior to Abram because Abram is the father, the greater to the lesser, right? The blessing would go from Abram to Melchizedek, not the other way around. So the fact that Melchizedek was not an Abrahamite, he was not related to Abraham, meant that he could not uh, have supremacy over Levi. Or if, I'm sorry, if he were a child of Abraham, he could not have supremacy over Levi. But the fact that he was not an Abrahamite, he was of a totally different genealogy, meant that it was at least possible that the priesthood that he had could be superior to Levi's priesthood. If he was a child of Abraham, there would be only one priesthood he could be related to, and he could maybe share in that preeminence, but he couldn't transcend it. But not being a child of Abraham and being a priest, it's at least possible that he could have a superior priesthood. That's the first thing. The second thing, then, is Levi's genealogy. The writer points that out. Melchizedek was not related to Abraham, but Levi was. Levi was. For that reason, he was completely implicated in the encounter that Abraham had with Melchizedek. As I said, in the loins of Abram, Levi paid the tithe from the lesser to the greater, and Levi received the blessing from the greater to the lesser. And so Levi, in the, the way the writer's looking at this, he's saying Levi also gave a tenth to God's priest king. And he also received the blessing of God's priest king. So Levi's genealogy is another proof for the superiority of Melchizedek. And then the last thing is Levi's mortality. Levi's mortality. He says in verse 8, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Levi's descent from Abraham meant that he shared the patriarch's mortality. So also by implication, and this is going to come out in the last part of chapter 7, So also the priests who were descended from Levi also shared that mortality. They were mortal men. They enjoyed their priestly preeminence among the sons of Israel, among the Abrahamic family as mortal men. They were Abrahamites, preeminent over the rest of them, but they also shared together with them the mortality of Abram himself. And the point of that, which is going to become clear moving forward, is that the mortality of the priests introduced an inherent transience to that priesthood. It introduced an inherent transience of a certain type. There was an impermanence, what he will call an imperfection, associated with that priesthood. 
The inherent transience of priestly men hinted at intrinsic impermanence, imperfection of priestly ministration. The mortality of those priests, the fact that death prohibited them from continuing, and that death, the reality of death itself, testified that they themselves were having to make offerings on their own behalf, offerings that would never really satisfy what they were appointed to deal with. And all of these are ideas that he's going to be developing. I'm kind of giving us a look down the road. But that's the case that he's building. Whereas the Levites and the Levitical priesthood was characterized in that way, he says that the Melchizedekian priesthood is characterized by a permanence. Melchizedek never passed on his priesthood. In that sense, he lived on. And if you didn't listen to the, the, the previous sermon, please go back and listen to it, because this whole idea of Melchizedek without genealogy, father, mother, beginning of days, end of life, he's not talking about what people often think he's talking about. But in terms of the way the scripture presents Melchizedek, he's a figure that you can't tie down to anything. He just appears, he's there, and then you don't hear anything more from him. And there's no record of a priesthood that he passes on to anybody else. It stays with him. As far as the scriptures are concerned, it's his priesthood. And in that sense, he, he lives on. He lives on. There's no passing of it to the, another man. Whereas the Levitical priesthood was a constant passing of the baton. Rotation of priests. By the time of Jesus, you had a whole rotation of priests. But even early on, you had Aaron and then his sons and then their sons and then their sons. And it just kept being passed and passed. But it remains with Melchizedek. That's the idea that, that sets the stage for where he's going next. But I want to conclude today by, by just trying to kind of pull what I think is the, is the significance of this in terms of the larger picture. Melchizedek, Abraham, Messiah. Because all of this is ultimately about his defense of the supremacy of Jesus, the Messiah. Abraham was God's man. It's important to understand that. When God called out Abram, God had a purpose to restore all things, to, to end the curse, to deal with the human alienation, the, the creational curse. And he chose one man out of all the world to be the instrument of that. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then it's in your seed, Isaac, and then in your seed, Jacob, and then in Israel. But Abram is the point of focus. Abram is the unique covenant heir in whom God bound up all of his promises for his creation. And the writer, I mean, his readers would have understand that. He refers to him as the patriarch, the one who had the promises. It's not just Abraham, you know, okay, well, he's a good guy or whatever, and he was a part of God's family. Abraham's the guy. He's the man. And we're going to see very shortly, if you, in Genesis, we're not going to see, but if you read on in Genesis, you see in the episode with Abimelech this priestly regal dimension of Abraham's significance. He gives over Sarah to Abimelech. And God brings the curse of death on Abimelech, a, 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 you know, a king, a Canaanite king. He brings the curse of death on Abimelech, his wives, barrenness, and the nation, his people. 
And Abimelech says, I'm, I'm innocent. I acted in the sincerity of my heart. This man told me she was his sister. He didn't tell me she was his wife. God says, I know. I know you acted in innocence. And I kept you from touching her. But this man, Abram, is my prophet. He will pray for you. And I will lift the curse of death from your household and your family. And if you look at that at face value, you say, what is God doing? You know, the guy that throws the covenant under the bus, the guy that gives his wife away because he's a coward, the guy that doesn't believe, the God who just said, next year, this time, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And that son will be the heir of all of this. All of my purpose for the world is bound up in Sarah's child and you throw her to a pagan king. And then you have an innocent man who takes a woman that he doesn't know that she's married. And God brings death on him. And he says, Abraham's my guy. He'll, he'll come and he'll plead for you and I'll withdraw my curse. Well, what's the point of the text? It's not about who's righteous or who isn't righteous or who's done the right thing or who's innocent or who's guilty. It's that God has ordained that Abram is the instrument of his blessing and life. Life out of death will come to the world through Abram. He's the guy. And yet, Melchizedek is greater than him. Abram's preeminence included regal dominion, power. Again, the occasion of the encounter is his triumph over this coalition of kings. And yet, Melchizedek transcends him. Not just as a king, but as a priest king. And there was a priestly dimension to Abram as well as the covenant heir. The whole thing with Abimelech is a priestly intercession, right? Melchizedek received Abram's tithe and he blessed him in the name of the covenant God. What's the point then? This is my point. There's the suggestion even at the point of Genesis 14, very, very early, God has just made his covenant with Abram. Abram doesn't even, you know, Sarah hasn't had a son yet or anything. This is just the beginning of the salvation history. And yet that early on, there's the suggestion that Abram's unique, superlative greatness in God's purposes is overarched or subsumed by, subsumed under the greatness and ministration of another. One who is a unique priest, king, outside of the covenant structure that God established with Abraham. Now, that's going to take some development down the road. But that same dynamic then extended beyond Abram to the priestly line to come from him. That same dynamic, you know, the uniqueness, the preeminence, the priestly ministration of Israel... The writer will go on to say the covenant was founded on the priesthood. That's how significant the Levitical priesthood was. And yet in all of that, that priesthood itself is also subsumed and finds its own greatness in relation to another priesthood that lies outside of it, that transcends it. So both Melchizedek and Aaron, the priestly, the, the Levites, served the same God most high as priests, but not with equal status or equal ultimacy. Melchizedek's priesthood preceded Levi's 
usually the movement in the salvation history is this prefigures this, this is greater, this is greater, this is greater, this is greater. Melchizedek's priesthood preceded and in a sense looked to and anticipated the priesthood that would come in Levi, and yet that priesthood was inferior. It came later. It built on, in a certain sense, the priesthood of Melchizedek, and yet it was inferior to it. Aaron's, Levi's priesthood was surpassed by a priesthood that existed before it, outside of the Abrahamic covenant and its structures. Not that it has nothing to do with Abraham, but it existed before it. It stands behind it. The writer's goal then is ultimately to demonstrate the superiority of the covenant associated with Melchizedek's priesthood. The priesthood is founded on, or the covenant's founded on the priesthood. Where there's a change of priesthood, there's a change of covenant. That's where he's going. I'm trying to just give us a view down the road. These are not hugely complicated ideas, but they're Israelite ideas. And so we have to understand this in the light of Israel's own story and the way in which God built this case. So then the most important thing is that the superiority of priest, priesthood, and covenant, again, are not a matter of of an alternative. We could have this or this, this one's better, we'll set this one aside, we'll go with this one. It's not that. It's not abrogation, it's not alternative, it's fulfillment. Though the Levitical priesthood came later in history and it built on the foundation of Melchizedek's priesthood through Abraham, that connection, Levi's priesthood actually prefigured and prepared for Melchizedek's. How can that be when Melchizedek's came first? How could the Levitical priesthood look to and and in a certain sense prefigure and predict and prepare for Melchizedek's if Melchizedek's came first? Because it does so not as that priesthood existed in Melchizedek himself, but as it looked to another priest of the same order. It's the same idea where, Mo, where the writer's going to say, when Moses built the tabernacle, he did it according to the pattern that God showed him. The reality of a sanctuary existed in God's mind, in the reality of God's intent, and what was built on the earth was a model of the reality behind it. And in the same way, the Levitical priesthood was a kind of, of temporal, earthly manifestation of a reality that lay behind it and that moved through it and transcended it. This idea of a Melchizedekian priesthood that would ultimately find its own uh, ultimacy, its own truth in the Messiah himself. So Melchizedek and his priesthood were perpetual in the sense of what they represented and where they found their ordained destiny in God's purposes. They spoke of priest and priesthood as eternal, ultimate reality. Priest and priesthood, just like temple, priest and priesthood as eternal, ultimate reality, that again stood behind the Levitical counterpart, gave that counterpart its meaning, moved through it, flowed through it, and move beyond it to attain its destiny in Jesus the Messiah. 
I leave you with this. This is what Philip Hughes said. And again, what I'm trying to do is, is connect Melchizedek, Abraham, and how this works together as the writers ultimately talking about what has come in the Messiah. Philip Hughes says this, In Christ, therefore, Abraham and Melchizedek meet again. And they not only meet, but as figures of the temporal and eternal orders in Christ, in Jesus himself, they are united into one eternal reality. It's a profound thing, but, but these are the ideas that the writer has in mind. And, and, and really, again, if, if, if his desire is to set out the glory of God in the face of Christ, that's what this is all about. And we as followers of Jesus, we as disciples of Jesus, are to be transformed into that same likeness. We're to grow up in the knowledge of him. The priesthood of Jesus is the center of our confession. Father, these are very simple ideas on the page. But they're an infinitely deep well. But these are not the things of graduate seminary classes as people want to debate minutiae. This is truly your glory in the face of Christ our Lord. And it's as we know him in this way, as we continue to grow in our understanding, in our ownership, in even being transformed by these things, that we actually are faithful children who are given over to the righteousness of obedience. For your purpose is that we would be fully conformed to Christ our Lord. How can we be conformed to one that we don't really know? Father, it's an infinite well of discovery and learning and growth and conformity that we find in Jesus. And I pray that you would not let us be content with simple, simplistic, generic ideas. And that you would not let us fall into the trap of seeing Jesus as a means to an end, a way to a happy life in heaven, a way to the end of our problems in this life, a way to the resolution of our difficulties. He's not a way to something. He is the something. He is the summation of all that you are, all that you've done, all that you're doing, all that you've purposed for your creation. Help us to live out the truth that we are part of a design that sees the summing up of everything in the creation in Jesus our Lord. And in that way, at last, Father, your own destiny for yourself will be realized, that our God will be all in all. Fill our hearts. Carry us away with almost unspeakable joy as we contemplate these things. And teach us, help us, minister to us by your Spirit. In the things that we're confused by, illumine us. In the things that seem beyond us, give them to us. We pray for what you seek for us, that we would grow up in all things into Christ the head. Meet us in that need. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.